0: Learning how to use machines. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so here's a question for you all to start. What's happened recently? Anything happened that caught your attention <laughs> this week? <laughs> yeah. Like what? Same sex marriage. Same sex marriage. Great. Obamacare? Anything else? Carolina. Carolina, yeah. South Carolina. So I want to talk about a couple of these things that are part of our life and part of our world right now and part of what's alive here in, in our world. And I'll start by talking a little bit about the Supreme Court ruling because that was pretty radical, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, and just to say this also, that I taught this morning at the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, um, and it was, and I've taught there many, many years now, you know, once or twice a year, I'm asked to teach there. And somehow I got, you get asked to teach about six months before, and I got asked, and I had no <laughs> idea, first of all, it was even, you know, Pride weekend, but also we had no idea what the hell was going to happen on Friday that did happen, which changes the nature of reality for our world and our culture, and uh, it's an amazing thing that happened, and uh, really what I think is a great thing that happened, which is people were uh, legally acknowledged for their humanity and their love and that is a radical thing to happen when there's the kind of ignorance that there has been and still exists of course and the unconsciousness and the prejudice that's been here for people depending on their sexuality right for gay people and lesbian people or of course there's also the other kinds of um, uh, Uh, differences that people are then uh, targeted for that I'm also going to talk a little bit about because it's part of our world and it's part of our practice to begin to wake up to the ignorance that is systemic both in our culture but also for human beings that human beings seem to need or have needed as part of their unconsciousness to create a self-other reality. Oh, there's me and then there's them, whatever the them is, and the them is different and not right, or something wrong, or they're bad, or, or whatever it m- might be. And so it's really, uh, was very moving to be at the Gay Buddhist Fellowship this morning, and of course just to be alive at a time when the relationship to homosexuality has changed radically, at least in the time that I've been alive, and I've been alive long enough to remember it being a very, uh, and again, as many of you know, I grew up in Detroit, and in Detroit, that was not a cool thing if you were gay, right, there was a lot of prejudice if you were gay, And and I remember growing up and hearing this, hearing things, and it was just that's how reality was understood if you were straight, right? Oh, that's a bad thing, or that's wrong, and there's something wrong with it. And I learned about I was pretty young when I learned about a little bit about sexuality, but really about different cultures sexually. Uh, I had an older brother and uh, he got involved with a woman who, um, and I, well, of course we didn't know this then, who was bisexual. And so she, and, and then it, she ended up getting pregnant, and they got married, and became part of the family. And of course she brought all her friends around. And I, I remember my parents would like, look at some of her friends like, whoa, well, who are these people? Because they were a little different. And they were, of course, I was a young kid, and I thought actually most of the people she brought around were pretty cool different, because she was also a beatnik. And I mean, when I met her, which is really, I I, mean, I don't even want to tell you how long ago it was, but <laughs> a long time ago, she was driving an MGB convertible Right, and this is Detroit. Detroit, you didn't drive foreign cars back then. This is before Japanese cars became big. She drove this MGB, and and she was she was cool. She knew something, and she was an artist, and you know, and then the people who were around the were, you know, they were artists and they were creative, and many of them were gay or lesbians, both, and so. It was very interesting to be introduced to that world as a young man, and uh, also my sister-in-law was great. I have a lot of love for her. She's still a total weirdo, Uh, but but that's not a problem. I learned to like weirdos very young, Uh, and but and but it was amazing even for me to watch the incalcation, the 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 uh, absorption of the prejudice, because it happens for all of us. We all spend, depending on where we are in which culture. But if you're in the dominant culture, let's you know, have heterosexual versus homosexual, for example, you inhale, you absorb the views, the beliefs, the ideas that are surrounding you, especially when you're young. You don't have that much understanding. And so I grew up in Detroit and and was happy to leave Detroit as soon as I could just because I was not a student type. I quit school young and left Detroit. I quit school at 14 and then again at 16 and finally graduated high school and just It felt like they wanted me to go to community college. I went for three weeks. I hated it. I I was like, I'm gone. And I went to New York, and New York was great, and uh, and I loved New York. And I'd gone to New York. I went to New York the first time when I was sixteen, and and I want to throw this in here because I went and uh, and this and because my brother and his wife had moved to New York with their first one kid, then two kids. And, uh, and it was uh, in the late 60s, and th- there was the first human being, human being. How many people here know of what a being is? Let me just see. That's impressive. It's interesting, at the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, they, they were older. A lot of people knew what it was. A being, here, before Burning Man, the, the hippies, <laughs> The hippies had beans and and what a bean was really, if I'm totally honest, everybody went to Central Park, got dressed up like totally hippied out, and took a lot of drugs and had a lot of fun and and but they were all different groups there, and I ended up being going there, going to the first bean in in new york and uh and uh and um, I ended up, Allen Ginsberg was there. Mm-hmm. And how many people know who Allen Ginsberg is? That's okay. <laughs> That's good. So, Allen and how many people don't know? Let me just see, anybody not? Okay, good, good. So, Allen Ginsberg was a poet. He was a beat poet, beatnik poet. He was in New York early in the 50s and 60s. He knew a lot of out there people, out there meaning radical people like William Burroughs and Kerouac who wrote On the Road, very close friends of his, lovers of his, and, and Ginsburg was, uh, he wrote a great poem that had a big impact on me as a young man at 14. He, had a, he wrote a poem called Howl, H-O-W-L, and Howl is uh, uh, it's dedicated to his friend, Carl Solomon, who's in a mental institution, and, and, it's a, and, it's, and it begins, and I'm forgetting, I used to know a lot more in the beginning, but the first line is, I saw, I saw the best minds of my generation, starving, hysterical, na- naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. And a fix was heroin. And so he's describing what happened to his generation who were, you know, brilliant and beautiful and creative people who were being, um, who were, uh, we could say, oppressed by the dominant culture of capitalism and middle-classness that was predominant in America post-World War II and was anti-communist and really anti-artist in a certain way. And so Ginsburg wrote this quite powerful poem that is still considered one of the great American poems of all time. I highly encourage you to read it. I'll read a little bit from the end of how at the end of this talk. But um, but I really... I. I, I loved Allen Ginsberg because he wrote that poem, he dedicated it to Carl Solomon. Carl Solomon was in a mental institution and, and I'd been a bad kid, like when I quit school the first time, I was 14, which you can't do, it's illegal, right, and I'd quit school and went, wasn't going to school and so finally I had this option, they, they were going to put me in juvenile home or I could go to a mental institution. and. I didn't like either option, to be honest, but I was smart enough, and you can see I'm not really that tall or anything, and I was short kid at 14, and, uh, and I realized, oh, if I go into juvie, I'll die. That was, and I'm not joking really, because I wasn't that kind of tough. You know, I had my whatever, but I wasn't that kind of tough. And so and uh, some people, friends, came and talked to me, meeting older friends, my brother, and my sister-in-law, both. and they all encouraged me to go to the mental, the mental institution, which was a public mental institution in Detroit, which, if I say that now, people think, "Oh my God, that's so horrible." But actually, it was great, and it was helpful. And the, the, I was not given any drugs. I was on an adolescent ward for three months and it totally changed my life in a good way because I had good help and it was liberating and eye-opening to learn about human reality and human psychology and what happens and what's possible with the kind of the kind of dukkha, if you don't know dukkha, it means suffering, it's a Pali word that's used in Buddhism for suffering. The kind of dukkha we can have in our heart and mind, and also the kind of freedom we can find from dukkha, which is what the Buddha taught about. He taught about suffering, and the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, and they're all connected. And so. Um, here I'm going to tell you one more little. This is an aside, but it's so fun to tell people. So I had a, I had a shrink in the in the uh, mental institution named Walter Guevara, and you know I I didn't know who the hell I didn't know what the hell was going to happen or what would go on, but I went, and uh, and he seemed okay, and you know we relationship built, and he was he was incredibly helpful. He was a psychiatrist. And you know, and I was doing, you know, therapy with him and in group therapy with these other, you know, teenage boys and and there was family therapy and it was it was it was actually all good. And again, they weren't giving out drugs then. They were actually dealing with you like you were a person and then helping you learn how to be a person. And so and then later, a few years later, after I moved to New York and I got involved in radical politics, uh, like seriously radical politics, which were great and I loved, and left wing radical, and I would go back to Detroit sometimes and visit, and I'd go see Guevara, Dr. Guevara, and so I'm talking to him one time, and, and I'm back visiting, and I'm talking to him about left wing politics. He said, Oh yeah, I know a little about that. Da-da-da-da. I said, How do you know? He said, Oh, I have a cousin who is involved in left wing <laughs> politics. <laughs> I said, Who? He said, Oh, Che. <laughs> so, so Che was his cousin and <laughs> so I figured then he got my blessing totally. <laughs> and, and he told me Che before the Cuban revolution Che had been uh, in communication with him and wanted him to come with him and, and Walter was in medical school and at some stage where he was getting his whatever, I don't know, you know, license or something. And he said, No, no, I have to stay here and finish this, and he did. And Che went and did the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> and so it was it was a nice connection that I always appreciate to this day, really, both of them, Che and Walter Guevara. <laughs> so anyhow, so 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 what I was speaking about was so I, I, I first met Alan at this b where he was doing something very Allen Ginsberg-like. He was chanting and uh, doing some, some, some kind of religious chanting, probably Hindu chanting at that time. And, uh, and then when I moved to New York and lived in the Lower East Side, Alan lived in the Lower East Side, so I would run into him at the Paradox. I just, I didn't, I, excuse me, I haven't remembered that name in a long time. And it, it was a microbiotic restaurant on the Lower east Side. And I mean, this Lower Side was a mess when I lived there. Now it's very hip, but then it was like, it was, it was not cool. But, but the Paradox was a very cool place. And you know, for a dollar you could get rice and beans and, you know, relatively decent food. It's so funny. I'm glad I remembered that, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I would get, I got to know him. I'm bringing him up partly because Allen Ginsberg was a beautiful being, a beautiful being. If you learn about him, first see some of his poems, definitely how, definitely, uh, you know, a number of poems he wrote, big poems that he wrote, and then also he was, um, he was real and he wasn't afraid of being real. And I mean that quite sincerely. Like, Allen Ginsberg was gay his whole life, and he was never shy about being out front who he was. He was gay, and he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And there wasn't, except other people might have thought that for sure, because it was a different culture at that time. But um, but he, and he was just very... Um, uh, honest about whatever he was into, with whoever he was into it with, and he was just straightforward as a human being, and and that took him very far on his path. He ended up getting very involved in Buddhism, practicing for many many years, and you know who knows where Alan is now. Maybe he's here with us. Who who knows? But good good guy, and and that's, a, that's I like that phrase. He was a good guy. Because that's one of the phrases that um, uh, Obama used when he was at the—he was speaking a eulogy for Reverend Pinckney, who got killed in Charleston. And he said one of the things he said about Reverend Pinckney was he, he was a good guy, and I love that because it's so simple and direct about what what we value. We're not looking to be amazing or superstars or anything, but being a good person in Buddhism, that has a tremendous value. That's seen seen as one of the highest things, the kind of ethical and moral uh, uh, truth that one can live, embody, and radiate and transmit that's highly valued in Buddha's practice, and that's what the Buddha did. The Buddha was for real. He was no bullshit. And and here, now I know there's a lot of idealization of these statues, but if you know me, you know I love statues, but I also, I'm not a statue, and I'm not interested in becoming a statue. They're, they're nice, the statues, they really. I have plenty of Buddha statues, but. But, and the Buddha wasn't a statue, and if you really read the Buddha, you read, oh, he could be a terror at times, he, really, he could be tough. He, he, he knew about compassion, but he also knew about fierce compassion. He also knew about saying what's true when there was bullshit going around. And that doesn't get publicized enough, in my humble opinion. So. Um, so let me go back. So I'm then mentioning all this about Allen Ginsberg because of what happened on Friday and my appreciation for him as a person who stood up for the truth of who and what he is, was. And that what I believe happened on Friday is that the culture and the government and the Supreme Court uh, um, enacted that kind of respect and value for people being who they are and loving who they love, and to quit living in an archaic and prejudicial and judgmental reality about people's sexuality. And part of the Buddhist teachings that Buddhist teaching that is very important is about suffering or dukkha, and dukkha comes in many forms, right? And it, we all have personal dukkha and collective dukkha and international dukkha. It comes in many different ways, but one of the ways it comes is in the form of ignorance and in the form of delusion and in the form of unconsciousness and in the form of prejudice. And so part of our practice is start to look at ourselves, and I mean each of us, and start to be open to learning about the prejudice or unconsciousness or fixed views we might not even know we have and just see what happens as we open to reality as it is a little more, and so the dukkha, the dukkha, remember dukkha, cause of dukkha, end of dukkha is what the Buddha taught, right, and they're all connected, suffering and cause of suffering and the end of suffering, it's not really three things, it's right through the dukkha, it's through the suffering that we begin to wake up and that's why we do the practice we do. You notice we're not trying to fix anything when we sit here. We're sitting here to see what's here really. And we want to see the surface of what's here and we want to not let ourselves be bound or just attached to the surface or the familiar. We want to be respectful of the surface And we also want to see what else is here that we might not know yet. Even the unconsciousness that might be part of each of us, because I believe it is part of each of us, and the different ways we might be ignorant or ignoring of reality and the way things are. And so that kind of ignorance or prejudice got really challenged on Friday in a beautiful way. (coughs) And so, part of also how I've been thinking about what happened on Friday is that it's about people being real, right? Because, you know, again, I'm old enough to remember Stonewall, which was a big deal for gay people. How many people don't know what Stonewall is? Let me just see. Okay, so Stonewall was a bar in New York that was frequented by gay people, that was raided by the police somewhere in 1968, 69, somewhere around then, and people rebelled against the police. It was a big deal, because nobody thought anybody would rebel, because that was a common part of the prejudicial nature of the culture, was, oh, of course police could do that. And they did do that and they did it, it really in every city or any city when they wanted to. And so and so the people who had been uh, uh, putting up with this said, we're not going to put up with this shit anymore. And they rebuilt and it changed reality. and we're still feeling the change even on Friday as part of the change that started that. Yeah. <clears throat> And so, there's something important about learning how to be real. First of all, to recognize reality, to be aware of reality. That's the beginning of our practice. Is to start seeing, oh, what is it that's really sitting here, in in what we call Eugene or man or person, right? Which are all fine parts of Eugene, right? And then there's things that not then there's the consciousness of Eugene, and the heart and mind of Eugene, and the feelings of Eugene, and the ideas of Eugene, and the prejudices of Eugene, or the orientations of Eugene, where Eugene feels more comfortable if he's around this rather than that, or or this kind of person rather than that kind of person. And you can start to see the prejudice, or the not just the prejudice, just the orientation towards a fixed reality that we all have. And it doesn't mean you have to change it all tonight and get rid of it all. It means part of practice is it'll keep revealing itself to you because that's what practice is about. Practice is about discovering freedom. And the freedom is not to be bound to anything not to be bound to anyone, including ourself, meaning not to be bound to the idea of who we are, but to keep discovering the reality and the depth and the, what in Buddhism we would call the flower of human consciousness and what's possible right here, right where we're sitting, each of us, and it's more than we know, and I say that for myself too, because I've been practicing thirty some years now, and I'm still just amazed to see. It's wild, you know. That's a Eugene term. It's not the Buddha didn't say it that way, but I like to say it that way because it's wild. Reality is fucking wild. The Buddha <laughs> didn't say that either, but that's, uh, but he wouldn't have minded me saying that. That I'm sure. of. <laughs> and so here, here's one thing I want to just add in about practice here. This is from uh, Thubten Children, Thubten Children, who's a woman, a Western woman, who's been a nun, I believe since 1975, in the Tibetan tradition. And you can go online and you know find out about her. She said, many people have the misconception that spiritual life or religious life is somewhere up there in the sky, or an ethereal or mystical reality, or that our everyday life is too mundane and not so nice. Often people think that to be a spiritual person, we must ignore and neglect our everyday life and go into another special realm. To me, being a spiritual person means becoming a real human being. And that, in my view, is a fantastic understanding of what it means to wake up. It means becoming a real human being, and that's what the Buddha did. He became a real human being, he, or the other way I like to say it, he became a mature human being. Not just the conventional kind of maturity, which you all have. We all have a certain amount of normal maturity, right? We pay our bills and have some relationships and do some work and, you know, we're, we're mature enough. But he pointed to a a deeper kind of maturity that was possible for us as human beings that that takes practice generally. It can happen without practice, you know, like one in every 500 million people. But, um, But generally, we need a little help. And practice starts to reveal the potential of what is already sitting here in your seat, in each seat. And so, part of the practice and part of what I believe happened dharmically on Friday was the respect for the real, for the way things are. Like, everybody get it? Some people are straight, some people are gay, some people are other, define themselves other ways. There's not just one way, right? People are different look around the room, not even such, just look around, everybody's different. Everybody has a different look, different hairstyle, different glasses, different clothes, different history. Right? Right? And then if we really look a little more closely, people have different cultures, different races, different religions they come from, different communities. This is all true and to start to get more comfortable with the reality of who we are and who other people are, this is part of Buddha's practice. Because remember the Buddha always said in all the teachings on mindfulness and bodyfulness and heartfulness and awareness, he said practice internally, practice being mindful, aware, internally and externally, both and it's why we play with it a little at the end of the sitting, because really people, mostly we end up thinking, oh meditation is about shutting their eyes and going inside, and that's an important and invaluable part of practice, but what's your meditation like right now? What's your awareness like right now? Are you aware of what you're aware of? Or are you identified with what you're aware of? Or are you aware of the awareness that's aware of whatever you're aware of your thoughts your feelings the sound of my voice liking it or not liking what i'm saying that doesn't that's all fine you can hate what i'm saying that's totally cool in buddhism but but are you aware of what you're aware of and the awareness itself right so it starts to change our orientation to reality and it keeps maturing it so that we're more and more open, meaning consciousness is more and more open to take in both the inner reality and the so-called, the so, let me say it this way, the so-called inner reality and the so-called outer reality, right? because maybe it's all just one reality. And so part of practice is not just individual, it's communal. Which is one of the reasons why I asked you, if you would, and thank you, to come move forward. Because it makes it more personally communal. I can see you better. I have actually more experience of you. You notice how if you get close to people, you have more experience of them? Like I mean physically, right? right. When we're intimate with people, we get really close. Well, you know, let's get intimate, we don't have to get too close, but let's, let's get more intimate, because intimacy is a beautiful thing, part of practice to become intimate with reality, because it's sitting right here in every seat, and, and, and every one of us. There's this amazing alignment sitting right here, and we want to know it both so-called internally and externally. And we want to see the Dharma and start to realize the Dharma or wake up to the Dharma that is available and it's right here. And it's something for us all to discover. It's a practice. Or, you know, I don't like the word practice so much. How about it's an adventure? That's a more fun word in my mind, and and it's true. just practice is, you know, conventional works for them. So here's part of what what I was thinking about after what happened Friday with the Supreme Court. And this is from Martin Luther King, Jr., who said, all life is interrelated. All life is interrelated. I mean, this, I could stop there. This is total Buddhism. Uh, Uh, which I don't think he was a Buddhist, all life is interrelated, somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. All life is interrelated, somehow we, we were caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Uh, that's great Dharma as far as I'm concerned. And that's pointing to the dukkha that comes from the self-other trance that we live in, right? There's me and you. There's there's us and them. There's self and other. And, and that division divides people on every level. And it's what the, and it's what was part of what happened in Charleston, right? The young man who had this totally irrational and crazy idea that he was going to kill these people to liberate the world, the South, right? And 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 I'll totally admit when I when I saw this, I thought, what happened? Here's what I thought, what. I'll be honest, here's what I really thought. What the fuck happened that this kid even thought that shit, right? How the hell does that happen, right? But, but, but it took me a little while to listen and consider and remember how profound racism is in this country and how woven into this country's fabric racism is. And what I mean by that is that we're a country built on enslaving people, and we're we're a country that's built on denying the enslavement of people, or pretending it ended in the end of the Civil War, even though it continued it for until now, and it continues still in the racism of our ideas, and our beliefs, and our culture, and our systemic reality of how people of color have been treated in this country. And it's something that people don't even want to talk about. No, no, the Civil War, that was over, and the slaves were free. Well, there was a, a technical kind of, oh, yeah, they were free. The paper was signed, they were free. But how were they, were they freed economically? Were they freed culturally? Were they freed educationally? Were they freed in any kind of reality, especially in the South? But, and of course, it was a different kind of not being freed in the North. It, was, it had a little more freedom, but a different kind of, of prejudice that's continued until now, and continues. And is important for us to be aware of because it'll just keep continuing until we start to wake up, and I mean that for all of us. And so, so a few things I want to say about what happened in Charleston. First of all, Cynthia heard Susan Jackson. Ethel Lance, Reverend DePayne Middleton-Doctor, the Reverend Clementa Pinkney, Tawanza Saunders, Daniel Simmons, Sharonda Singleton, Myra Thompson were all murdered because of this prejudice. And they were murdered for no reason except this cultural prejudice that has continued unspoken to really for as far as I know since we began as a nation because we're a nation that's partly built on slavery and there's been a tremendous resistance to change because if you're in the dominant culture What do you want to change? What's the problem? What's wrong? Oh yeah, we know there's this, a little that. Oh yeah, well, we'll change a law or two. But what we're talking about is changing personally. And that's a harder thing for everybody, for all of us. And so the killing in South Carolina really, I I don't know what to say about it, except let's wake up, let's not go back to sleep, actually uh, Obama said a great thing, he said it would be a betrayal, because he knew Reverend Pinckney he'd met him, you know, as he traveled as a politician and and actually, if really, better than listening to me, really, I wish we had you know, a big setup and we could broadcast some of Obama's eulogy because it was so powerful and so worth hearing for all of us because it wakes you up when you hear it. And when you see the people there who are so, uh, I don't even know what to say, just that they're there and that they're alive and they're willing to stay alive to fight this kind of Eugene-Word bullshit. Uh, um, He said, uh, President Obama said, it would be a betrayal of everything Reverend Pinckney stood for, I believe, if we allowed ourselves to slip into a comfortable silence again. And that's what we do. We all slip into a comfortable silence because it's comfortable, it's easier. It's you know it's better you know we're all busy right I know you're all busy and believe me I'm busy we're all busy and we all have things to do and things that need to be done I'm not denying that and I'm not saying oh you have to not do everything that's needed to be done but start to put reality into the foreground the bigger reality, not just the internal reality, but the external reality, and the cultural reality for us as a culture and a country together. Because if one person is not free, the rest of us are not free. And that's that's just basic understanding of Buddhism and the bodhisattva path. In the talk, which of course there's much, much more to be said, or, or that I could say that not enough time left. <clears throat> but now I'm going to do it this way. Let's take a few minutes. I'm happy to hear from any of you. Any thoughts, feelings about anything I've said, please come up to the mic. Please, just say your name, and then it's Don. Pardon? My name's Don. Hi, Don. Yeah. Uh, don't misunderstand this, but um, how do you see the law of karma, what happened in uh, South Carolina? Is there, oh God. Yeah, don't sure, the law What's of karma, the? I'll tell you how yes. I see the law of karma with what happened in South Carolina. That is bad karma for white people. That's bad karma for prejudiced people. That's the kind of bullshit understanding of karma where you blame the victim, and that's not the understanding of karma in Buddhism at all. I'm, I'm the, hold on. Go ahead. I'm asking. Uh-huh. Go ahead. For what? How you see this as karmic? If there's any karma there, I wasn't speaking. Okay. Speaking about. Thank you. It, Thank no. you. I had my judgment quickly. I was. You know, karma is so complex. The Buddha said, if you really want to go crazy, try to figure out karma. He said, you don't try to think your way to karma. Just understand that causes have conditions. That is the karma of what happened. We need to look at the conditions that created that kind of action. It's not about fault look at the conditions in our country, in our culture, in our all, not speaking about racism, speaking about what this country is built on, and believe, I love the United States, amazing country, but also, if we don't get real, things don't get woken up. So it's that's how I understand karma in this situation. You look for the causes and conditions. It's nothing is separate. That's really where karma. That's the understanding of karma. Everything has a cause and condition. It's all woven. Realities, like Martin Luther King said, it's woven together. Okay. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks. Sure. Please. Sorry, good
1: news. Hi, Eugene. Um, I have experienced racism in my family. My my dad was a white Irish cop in Baltimore, and he we grew up with this using the word the N word and. I remember in second grade, my one of my closest friends was black, and my father s- said, "You know, you can't hang out with this person, or there'll be severe punishment." Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, this is—it was—it's really traumatic to grow up in that kind of environment mm-hmm. and to instill a lot of fear around being people of different color, people who might not look the same. Um, And it's just, it was, you know, it's pretty heartbreaking, right? And I think Uh, that, you know, it's um, it's tough. And I learned you know, I didn't understand, right? Sure. So as I grew up, I became friends in track and high school and college. With um, I became friends with African Americans, and and it changed. And um, but I, I know like still I have there's a still prejudice, there's still fear, and and I yeah that's all I have to say.
0: Yeah, well good, I appreciate you saying it and it's true and we all have prejudice each way, right? Each way, whatever the different whatever the whoever the other is there's certain kinds of prejudice. Being willing to see it is the beginning of the end of it. Being willing to be aware of it and practice with it uh, uh, you know, and, and learn about it, and understand, and I, I hope to do a talk soon about the Dharma as understanding, and what that means, and what the Buddha meant when he said the, the practice is about understanding reality. So, thank you. Go ahead, anyone. Please.
2: This is directed to everyone. Uh, my name is Kathleen. I used to live in the Bay Area for about five years, and I actually live in South Carolina now. Um, and was was a very interesting position because I flew in on Thursday and hadn't heard about the situation until I landed in LA. And somebody was like, oh, you're from South Carolina. Did you hear? And I read about it that night or that morning. Um, and so it's interesting. You know, South Carolina, I live in Spartanburg. It's not a huge metropolis, but it's definitely not the Bay Area. But in the year plus that I've lived there, I've actually not experienced or sensed any kind of racism. Um, If anything, actually, the Southerners have been some of the sweetest, most heartfelt people I've actually ever met. And um, the city that I live in is a huge hub for a lot of universities. So there's a ton of, like, a lot of African-American folks, a lot of white folks, some other. ethnic backgrounds as well. But so it was actually really quite surprising when I saw that, especially in Charleston of all places, because mm-hmm. that's a very sort of more touristic, um, multicultural place. So I think the reason I'm wanting to share is just I'm a little, it's interesting. I, I never thought I'd be protective of South Carolina, sure. but I also don't want it to seem as though, you know, oh, here's this kind of backward yeah, yeah. South. like. I'm only one person, and I can't say it. I can speak for all the situations, but I think what has most touched me about the situation is that it's just shown that even though racism isn't as outward as maybe at one point it was, it's still there. No, no, and to what you were saying, it's like, what are the causes and conditions that are still allowing this to happen? What What did that young man experience that caused him to want to do something right. like this? And so. I'm going to be going back in a few days, and I don't I don't know what to expect as far as, are there going to be riots? Is it going to change the landscape? But like I said, in the year that I've been out there, it's the people there have been so sweet, sure. and I just want to keep great. that in uh, yeah. the consciousness of people. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: great to hear that. And of course, it's not any one place in this country. That's what's deceptive about ignorance and prejudice. You know, some people can dress themselves up and look like, oh yeah, no, I'm not prejudiced at all. You know, it's alive here in this country. We're all responsible at a certain point to deal with what's going on. And I mean it on every, I don't just mean it in terms of uh, African American and white, I mean it in terms of African American or in Mexican American or any whatever minority it might be because depending on where you live there are different minorities it can be Eastern European minorities or it can be Asian minorities people from Asia or it can be gay straight bisexual transgendered or you know word you know ABCDQ I don't know all the all the words but, but it's pointing at something about our culture that we don't teach, or that's not well taught, which is that we're all here together, and that togetherness is radical, because we're not exactly the same, no matter who and what we are, right? I mean, there's economic prejudices, yeah, thank you, so I'm just, more, I just I just think it's part of, oh, if we want to be free, this is part of what it means for all of us. And again, I'll just say a little background. One of the places I learned the most about this was teaching the community Dharma leaders, which I teach for Spirit Rock. And even Spirit Rock is unconscious about its prejudice, because it's like everywhere else. It's grown up in this atmosphere of, reality being us and them. So, the people who started Spirit Rock, who I know and love and all great people, they have their own unconsciousness based on you know, color, religion, class, economics, just part of the deal if you're not aware of it. And when you're the dominant of whatever it is, there's no not so much reason to be aware of. When you're not the dominant, Then you get aware really quick, because you're learning how to navigate a reality that is not being defined by you. and That's a key piece to understand about uh, dominant culture. Dominant culture is defining reality, when in fact, reality is much wilder than that. It's much broader than the one definition. And so CDL is one of the places that I learned a lot because when I was asked to take on CDL, which I did, part of it was because the CDLs had had problem with being um, racially immature, right? The people who were running it, there was not a sophistication understanding how to deal with a variety of peoples. And so because, not because I've had any training, but at least I goddamn grew up in Detroit. And <laughs> you know, I knew, a, and I've been on the streets a lot in New York and Detroit and stuff. And so I knew a little bit about the world. And so when they asked me to take it on, I, and why they were asking was around prejudice and things like that, and diver, diversity. That's the, the PC word, diversity. And so I said, sure, I'll take it on, and, and then I, and I was given some carrots, which, of course, I wanted the carrot, right? And, and then um, I, I said, okay, well, I'll teach this, But um, uh, and I said, okay, but I, there should be at least another teacher of color, right? Because I'm not a person of color. And I I was I was being encouraged to teach it with my friend Tanissara, who'd been living in South Africa for the (coughs) past twenty years and had been a non and is fantastic. Being many of you know Tanisera, so I first the carrot was Tanisera actually, and I said sure I'll do it if I can do it with Tanisera I'll do it, and then it was me and Tanissara, and then it was like oh that's not that's not what's needed here, we need a teacher of color, and so I said okay I'll. I'll ask my good friend Gina Sharp, who is the head of the New York Insight, and Gina said yes, and so that was great. And then some other people came and wanted me to not to, to bring Larry Young in because Larry's done a, young, a lot of work, fantastic work around diversity and and those kind of issues. And I said, well, I don't know, I don't know Larry. Let me let me go have dinner with Larry, and. Uh, and so I went and had dinner with Larry, and, uh, and, it was, and I had a great time. I thought, I thought really, when I thought, oh, this guy's great, I'd work with him. And, and, but normally, you would never have more than three teachers, even two teachers was generally what you would have. I already was having three. Now, what am I going to do, Gina or Larry? That's what they were saying. And then I thought, oh, fuck that. I'll have four teachers, right? And let's have both Gene and Larry. And that was, a, that was, as far as I'm concerned, that was the best thing I've done in 30 years of Dharma, Right? was, was to create that team, because we created a radically different team that had never been seen before at Spirit Rock. And what it did was, when we did the next CDL, and we had 100 people who were being trained to teach our communities, we had 40% people of color which had never been in any group in Spirit Rock before, of any training in Spirit Rock. And that was radical. And that taught us all a tremendous amount because nobody knew how to be in the same room together and be real. And I mean that, but nobody did. And we all learned how to do it by doing it. And we all learned a tremendous amount. And now we're doing the second CDL. And it's, again, it's it's about 40% people of color, and I'm totally happy to be part of it because it wakes us all up. And when I say all, I mean me, wakes me up to be with reality, not with my idea about reality. So we need to stop. Wait, 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 wait. one second. We've got to do a little sharing of merit. So... I mean, you can run out if you need to, go ahead, but uh, let's just sit for one second. So appreciating the time and place and opportunity that we all have here to investigate reality together, to discover the Dharma together, to see what is dukkha, and what are the causes of Dukkha and what is freedom from Dukkha. And may our practice and the benefits of our practice, may it be for our benefit and the benefits of one another and for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering May we all be free from the suffering of ignorance and delusion and confusion and misunderstanding and prejudice. May we all awaken and discover the truth, discover the Dharma, discover the potential of wisdom and compassion that is sitting right in each being. May all beings be free. my mind and yeah. she she's got books out yeah. and all yeah. kinds of stuff. No, i
3: I've, I've heard some yeah. of her stuff she's great she's okay. kind of hardcore. okay um, and another
0: question is so i'm in this yoga
3: and mindfulness training and the diversity question up at spirit rock it's a year-long yoga and mindfulness training uh-huh. teacher training and there's a lot coming up on this last retreat the diversity question right. opened up
0: yeah and
3: uh, it's it's been real difficult yeah but um, that's
0: a good part of
3: it. It is good, um, but I'm kind of hungry for some, I don't know, some like some of the reading that we've got, I've, I'm kind of,
0: I don't know, I'd really
3: like how maybe you do another talk about this race, this race question, um, because it's kind of like this question was opened up, and then, and then it was left open, and I'm kind of...
0: Who, who's teaching that?
3: Anne Cushman and Will kabat are the directors, okay. and then Philip Moffat, Pascal Eau Claire. Um, they're like the main teachers, and then there's some guest teachers coming Dr. in and out. Nolly Way was, was oh, on the last
0: one. Oh, great. Nolly. Yeah, she, she was great, but yeah. there's kind of been this gap.
3: I felt like it was opened up. They gave us a couple of short readings. Tell, that were, Tell them. Yeah, okay.
0: Complain. <laughs> okay. And tell them that I told you to complain. Okay. Really, and um, and then just the one other thing: check out Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson. Do You know who he is? No. He's a African American attorney. Brilliant.
3: Okay. Um, and and
0: um, beautiful. Oh,
3: is he in Berkeley? know, I, I have no idea. I
0: don't think so. But.
3: I listened to a talk on. There's a, a podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett. If you've ever heard of it? She, she had a really, really great guy on. Like, okay, this guy, Brian Stevenson. I
0: heard him do a, a TEDx talk.
3: Okay.
0: He, about race and what's happened in this country. Oh, no. I felt like this guy's got it.
3: Okay, right. all right. And he's very Brian cool. Stevenson.
0: Ryan Stephen. If you have a problem, email me and I'll see you. All right. Thanks a lot, Hi.
1: I just wanted to say one other piece that, that I've been in awe of uh-huh. in South Carolina, which actually I just said to Pam on Wednesday, and I guess I'm needing to say it because it's so astounding to me. It's the level of forgiveness. The level, the level of forgiveness. Yeah, yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I can't even... Yeah, yeah. I can't even wrap... I can't yeah. even, But I keep thinking about it. Yeah.
1: And just... No, it's, it's, I, yeah, it's, again, it's, for, I don't even know what to... Say.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I just... No, want no, no it's true. Exactly. You know, yeah. if, we, if I had a longer talk, it would have gotten in there. Because I mean, even... Yeah, both the forgiveness and uh, what the people did when the shooting happened, right? Like yeah. jumping in front of kids yeah. and stuff. And, you know, I mean, this is human beings, right? Yeah,
1: anyway, so thank you for A lot to say about it.
0: A lot to digest. Yeah, well, hopefully we're all... I don't know how to work this fucking machine. It's driving crazy. Excuse me. Oh, that's okay. well, anyway, it. Oh, to see I see. <laughs> I see. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.